We'll read a couple of passages of Scripture, and then we'll get into the teaching today. And by the way, this is going to be a, a slower, a methodical lesson, because the subject matter is so important. You know, and sometimes you can just let emotions get involved and, and just preach and try to encourage people. Other times, uh, the purpose is specific, in-depth teaching. We're going to be doing uh, far more of that this morning, so uh, just be prepared. Let's begin in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Galatians. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let them be accursed." As he said before, so say I now. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that we have preached, received, let him be accursed. Now turn over a couple of pages to uh, chapter 3 and down to verse 26. For you are all the children of God. How? By your skin color? No. By your nationality? No. Uh, by your parents' good works? No. By your good works? No. By faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you has, have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Ne- there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Today we're going to kind of finish what we began last week as uh, we were dealing with... Um, critical race theory in particular. And today we're going to tie in and touch into a little bit of the uh, gospel of black liberation theology, what it is and where it comes from. Of course, as always, let me preface Bible study. The Bible's a Jewish book written by Jewish authors to a largely Jewish audience about the Jewish Messiah slash King, who also happens to be the creator of everything and the savior of everything. We have to understand the Bible as you read it from left to right. It's a progressive revelation that builds upon itself. And you also have to study the Bible from a Jewish worldview. There's abundant use of Jewish idioms and topics that were familiar to them that perhaps might not be familiar to us. Now, as we saw last week, critical theory was born out of Marxism. Marx needed to have division. He needed to have contention. He needed to have a fight because he wanted that to turn into a revolution to throw off the existing capitalist system so that he could replace it with communism. His division was property owners versus non-property owners. That was expanded over time to include social issues through the Frankfurt School what's called the Frankfurt School of Marxism. Now, again, as I said a moment ago, to accomplish the goal of revolution, you have to have conflict. Where Marx was focused just on that economic dichotomy, which, by the way, was not successful. Every time the labor union went out for strike, once they got a pay raise, they went back to work because that's what they wanted. They wanted to make a better living. They didn't want a revolution. They didn't want to try to destroy the, the superstructure of that country to replace it with this communist garbage utopia. But since that wasn't successful, the division of the dichotomy was expanded, reaching social issues, out of which comes gender, gender identity, income, religion, sexual orientation, immigration status, with one group being identified by the Marxists as the oppressors, 
the other group being the oppressed. So in these situations, on immigration status, the illegal immigrants are victims being oppressed by citizens of the United States. Uh, Non-Christians are oppressed by Christians. Gender identity, gender sexual orientation, LGBT issue are all victims being oppressed by heterosexual Christianity. But that is the division. Anything that they can use to divide is all that matters. There's an old Marxist phrase that says the issue is never the issue. The issue is the revolution. Well, one last very important, very successful issue was added to this equation in the late 60s and early 70s. It was this issue of race. And the purpose was another means of trying to divide America. And with it was born black liberation theology. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we need to remember our history so we never repeat it. And as good as much of American history was, there's also a lot of awful things in American history. By the way, we weren't the only ones. Slavery was global. The oppression of Africans was global, including in Africa by other Africans. And even today, there are more slaves on planet Earth today than there ever was in the 1800s. Estimates of some 45 to 47 million enslaved, primarily in Muslim countries and communist countries. By the way, Nike has a healthy profit margin because they have all their sneakers and everything uh, produced by slave labor in communist China. But that's not politically incorrect. That is politically incorrect. Talk about that, and that's not the issue because the whole focus is trying to criticize America and destroy the United States of America. But America was wrong at the outset. And we've talked about why the division was. Quite frankly, the, faiths of the, the faith base of the North was built on Puritanism and the separatists coming out of the Church of England. They're the ones that said all men are created equal. The faith base of the South was largely established by the Church of England. And of course, there was hierarchy in the Church of England. At the top of it was the king. Then you had the nobles and nobility then you had, you know, the prominent, the wealthy. Down at the bottom, you had the, uh, the, uh, the, those of virtually little worth, according to their class system. So the idea of indentured servitude and slavery of other whites was well in practice. And, of course, once the African slave trade was introduced, well, that was just all too convenient. But that is largely the separation between the North and the South. And folks understand, and we'll address on this later, obviously it was wrong. Obviously it was sin. Obviously this country paid a great price for it in the war between the states. And obviously that carried over. I can't imagine. And maybe that's why it's so difficult, because I've lived in the area that I've lived in. You know, my teammates at Oklahoma State were, were at least 50% black. My teammates at Chicago Bears were at least 50% black. I mean, I spent over 10 years in a locker room working with Hispanic, black, white. We were just all, we were bears, and you were the Vikings, or we were bears, or you were the Cowboys. We were one team, and we were together, and we wanted to beat your team. The idea that there was ever a point in time where there would be a sign on the door of some store saying, the Irish are not allowed in here, astounds me, but it happened. To think that there was ever a period of time or section of the United States 
or anywhere in the world for that matter, that say Jews aren't allowed in here, or we're not going to shop here because you're Jew. That astounds me. And to think that we actually had segregation and discrimination on racial terms just as little as, what, 60 years ago, astounds me. Now, folks, there are some cases of behavior where you can discriminate. You've seen many restaurants that say, for example, on the door, no shirt, no shoes, no service. Well, they're discriminating based upon behavior. I discriminate when I perform weddings because I believe what the Bible says about the establishment of the family. I believe it's a man with a woman joined together as one until death alone parts them. So I will discriminate according to biblical terms. Is that bad? No, I'm just following the Word of God. By the way, that also is behavior because you're not born that way. There is no gay gene. As hard as they've tried to find one, there ain't one. So it's one thing to discriminate based upon behavior. My mom used to discriminate and whack me with a belt whenever I disobeyed her. Come on now. What about my rights? But to discriminate based upon the level of melanin in your skin obviously was wrong, and obviously that is a, a, a stain on America's history. But what is exactly black liberation theology? Well, first of all, black liberation theology starts with a false premise. It starts with the premise that all whites are racist oppressors and all blacks are victims of the white man's oppression. Now, understand the Marxist thought behind this and how it's been used. Marx had to have that dichotomy. He had to have the fight. His was property owners versus non-property owners. The property owners always oppress the non-property owners, according to Karl Marx. So as you go into this critical theory, which was born out of the Frankfurt School of Marxist thought, uh, the oppressors are always oppressing, and the oppressed are always being oppressed. So if you're a heterosexual, you're always oppressing the LGBT crowd. If you're a citizen of the United States, you're always oppressing non-citizens of the United States. If you are born white, then you are part of the oppressing crowd, and you are always oppressing the blacks. By the way, if you argue or debate or deny or show facts as evidence, this only proves your white fragility because you are a racist. Well, how do we know you're a racist? Because we said so. Now, how did they come to this conclusion? Well, the black theologians looked at such passages in Scripture as Luke chapter 4, when Jesus showed up in the, Nazareth, uh, the synagogue in Nazareth where he had grown up in as a boy. And he opened the text. Actually, I believe it was actually the required reading of the day as all synagogues go through. I don't think it was by chance. just happened to be that day they asked Jesus because he was a a well-known figure and there was a lot of discussion about this guy and the miracles that he had done. They asked him to come up and speak and he had the scroll, opened it to Isaiah 61, read this passage of Scripture which basically identifies him as the Messiah specifically and he said, today this is happening right before your very eyes. However, the part that the black liberation theologians will point to is this one phrase, to preach deliverance to the captives. Obviously, Jesus was relating to the blacks. Well, no, actually, that's not what this passage is dealing with. However, Jesus is relating to any oppressed person, 
We're all oppressed by sin. Jesus came and died on the cross for victory over our chains of sin. Jesus also concluded the Olivet Discourse with this verse, Matthew 25, 40, said, The king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. So delivering the captives and the least of the brethren, it's concluded by some of the absolute worst Bible expositors that I've ever read in my life. That is determined as their blackness. Now, as I said earlier, In fact, let me just say, what should be the goal? Should the goal be, okay, paybacks? We need 100 years of of black suppressing whites, and then makes everything even. Is that the goal? No, I don't think so. I think the goal is everybody seeing Jesus, falling in love with Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, and we all bear the fruit of the Spirit. Loving the Lord with all our hearts, mind, body, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That is what God's ideal is. That's what our goal should be. James Cone, I don't believe, who's one of the fathers of black liberation theology and this subject matter, I believe that he had an improper understanding of what the Bible actually says about your right to defend yourself. You know, Christianity makes very good sense. You go through Scripture, and the Bible will tell you, for example, here's an illustration. If I was to awaken in the middle of the night, and I heard somebody breaking into my house, and my wife was in danger, my life was in danger, my children were in danger, the Bible says that I have every right to use uh, deadly force at that moment to defend my house. Boy, doesn't that make sense? Wouldn't you do the same thing? But the Bible also says, let's say, for example, I woke up the next morning and I discovered that my house had been broken into. And by chance, there's the guy's wallet laying there on the floor. And I see Steve Blair. And I get in my car and drive over to Steve's house and shoot him in the foot. No, you cannot do that. At that point, you turn it over to the civil authority and there is a trial And guilt is established by at least the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the Bible makes common sense. However, so much of the emphasis of Christianity in teaching has been turning the other cheek, forgiving one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And from that, Cone said, well, this is insufficient, and started reaching out and adopting other faith systems and incorporating that in, specifically Islam. And, of course, the primary difference, well, there's many differences between Christianity and Islam, but one of which Christianity gives you the right to defend yourself, your family, your country. Islam says conquer all non-Muslims until the whole world becomes Islamic. So there's a significant difference. However, some of Islamic teaching was incorporated into this mindset. Cohn said, the God of Moses and Jesus make an unqualified solidarity of the victims, empowering them to fight against injustice. Folks, I think we all agree. We all want to fight against injustice. Cohn said, I still regard Jesus Christ today as the chief focus of my perspective on God. Well, that's good. Uh, But not to the exclusion of other religious perspectives, i.e. Islam. 
God's reality is not bound by one manifestation of the divine in Jesus, but can be found wherever people are being empowered to fight for freedom. As Malcolm X put it, this is a continuation. By the way, Malcolm X was a Muslim. I believe that in a religion that believes in freedom, anytime I have to accept a religion that won't let me fight a battle for my people, I say to hell with that religion. Cohen went on to say, a word to Whitey. I believe that all aspiring black intellectuals share the task that Leroy Jones has described in the black artist in Amer- for the black artist in America to aid in the destruction of America as he knows it. Folks, that is the goal of Marxism. That's the Marxist. That's why there's rioting in the streets going on right now. That's why we're dealing with all these issues. There is a press. You heard Alex Newman on Wednesday night put some meat on the bones, things that I've preached about before. America is the one big stumbling block to integrate all the countries in the world into the United Nations, governed by the United Nations. America was falling quickly in line as we were decreasing, other countries were increasing until we could just all blend together without hardly feeling it and surrender our sovereignty until something happened in 2016 and Mr. Make America Great Again wound up in the White House. That really disrupted the plans. Let's go on. While it is true that blacks do hate whites, black hatred is not racism. By the way, all this I have this book at home, Black Theology and Black Power, James H. Cohn. All white men are responsible for white oppression. I didn't realize that. I guess by the same logic, we're all responsible for abortion. To some degree. I want you to know, folks, I don't know what else we can do. We have tried as hard as we We've done everything we know to do. We have fought against abortion tooth and nail. We thought we had it whipped a couple of years ago until our governor betrayed us. Boy, I, I don't know what to do to stop. I'm glad we're about to get another Supreme Court justice. I don't believe we're supposed to be ruled by the Supreme Court. That's not how the Constitution designed it. However, in practice, that's how we've been operating for, for many decades. So, boy, let, let's get a very conservative, godly Supreme Court, and let's get rid of this Roe versus Wade nonsense. I'm all for it. But I don't know what else to do. I don't feel responsible for it. I've done everything I can to fight against it. Nevertheless, it exists. Let's go on. Theologically, Malcolm X was not far wrong when he called the white man the devil. The white structure of this American society, personified in every racist, must be at least part of what the New Testament meant by the demonic forces. Now, I can see trouble brewing right here. But this next statement is outright troubling. For the person that's going to say it claims to be a Christian preacher. It says this, The idea of heaven is irrelevant for black theology. The Christian cannot waste time contemplating the next world if there is a next. That is a direct quote. I have an issue with that. It's a theology which confronts white society as the racist antichrist. In fact, it goes on more than that. Black theology must counsel black people to be suspicious of all whites who want to be friends of black people. When we look at what whiteness has done to the minds of men in this country, we can see clearly what the New Testament meant when it spoke of principalities and powers. It is this fact that makes all white churches anti-Christian in their essence. To be Christian is to be one of those whom God has chosen. God has chosen black people. 
Marxist thought, ladies and gentlemen, group thought. It's the group that matters. Group guilt because you're white. Group redemption because you're black. Let me make another comment in passing before we get into the Scripture in heavy doses. Understand that in 2008, 43% of white voters voted for Barack Obama. Now, I did not. I don't like the man's policies. I still don't. You know what? Years before that, I supported Alan Keyes. Alan Keyes is about as dark as you can get as a black man. But Alan Keyes is a Christian, and he is a conservative. I agree with his policies. has nothing to do with race. 43% voted for Barack Obama. 55% voted for John McCain. What's interesting is that 95% of the African-American community voted for Barack Obama. And over 4% voted for McCain. I don't know about you, but that looks to me like it's this community during the 2008 election that was more concerned about skin color than policy. And let me also say this, you cannot have a systematically racist country that goes to the polls and elects a black president. That is not a sign of systematic racism. So we weren't that divided in 2008. However, remember what community organizers do. And remember that President Obama's father was a communist. This is not rumor mongering. This is very easy. It's out there. Remember that his mentor, Frank Marshall Davis, was the publisher of the communist paper, The Spokesman. He was the founder of the communist Chicago newspaper, The Star. He was a card-carrying Communist Party member, actually had a membership card, swore an oath of loyalty to the Soviet Union, identified as a national security threat by the FBI, and he was mentor to Barack Obama. After eight years... We became a very divided nation. That's been intentional, ladies and gentlemen. Critical race theory has been brought into every area of our government. It's in our universities. It's in our elementary schools now. The idea that all white people oppress all black people, that all white people are racist, that America is systematically racist, and since the system is racist, we must destroy, we must burn down the system to replace it with something else. Thank heavens our president signed an executive order to remove this nonsense from our government areas. We had better work to drive this out of our seminaries. We better work to drive it out of our universities and out of our public education. In fact, quite frankly, the best education you can is to homeschool your children. Or put them in private Christian education. God gave parents the responsibility of overseeing the education of their children. Not supposed to turn them over to the government at the age of five and then pick them up at 21. And then be surprised that they turned out to be little Marxists that don't believe in God. Well, two local black ministers were asked by a common friend to listen to the sermon that I had done on Black Lives Matters. By the way, you know my message is I document everything. Uh, I'm, I'm obsessive compulsive when it comes to that. My messages stand on facts, not feelings. 
And I also always preface and end with Acts 17, 11. Listen to every word I say, but don't believe a word I say. You prove it to yourself. You chase down everything that I'm telling you. You make sure that I am correct. But my statement was, Black Lives Matter. If it is standing with Christ, it would be pro-Christ. If it is standing against Christ on an issue, it would be anti-Christ, would it not? Black Lives Matter supports baby murder at all stages. I call that anti-Christian. Black Lives Matter supports the destruction of the biblical family. Well, I call that anti-Christian. Black Lives Matter supports Marxism, which is nothing more than atheism, covetousness, theft, and murder, all combined into a nice, tidy political package. If you support that, you are opposing Christ. You are anti-Christian. By the way, Black Lives Matter hates the police. They believe that that represents the state. Let me ask you a question. Who was it that established civil government on the planet? God did. For what purpose? To punish evildoers and to protect those of us that do well, that we may all live peaceably in all godliness. Now, after hearing my message on Black Lives Matter, in light of Scripture, these two ministers tried to justify reparations. You say, Brother Paul, what's reparations? Well, reparations is the idea that white people today... Whoever, uh, who never owned slaves should write checks to black people today who never were enslaved to make reparations for a sin that happened in America over 160 years ago. Claimed justification from two passages of Scripture. We'll look at those this morning. Leviticus chapter 6, I put it on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to it. But this deals with some jurisprudence for the nation of Israel. If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord, well, how are we trespassing against the Lord? By lying unto his neighbor, and that was delivered unto him to keep, or in fellowship, or in a thing taken away by violence. We've looked at this before. That word violence means basically, not as we would think, but to violate someone else's property rights, is how it's used largely in Scripture. Theft, uh, deceit, uh, business deception, things of that nature. He hath deceived his neighbor, or have found that which was lost in life. Let's say that Doc was missing a, a lamb. Hey, Brother Paul, uh, I'm, I'm missing my lamb. I've got my flock of sheep out here, but one lamb's missing. Have you seen it? Well, if I had the lamb in my backyard and I said, No, Doc, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, that would be what's being spoken of in this particular issue. That which was lost concerning it, sweareth falsely, and all these that a man doeth sinning therein, then it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore that which he took away improperly, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered unto him to keep, and the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he has sworn falsely, he shall even restore it in principle, and add 20%, and give it to him to whom it was, he, who was defrauded in the day of his trespass offering. So, folks, this is judicial. Just exactly like today, if you were to do 40 miles, a, if you were to drive 40 miles an hour in a school zone, Something is going to happen to you. There's going to be a penalty. You're going to have a fine to pay. 
And it's only you. It's not your kids. It's not your wife. It's not your grandchildren. It's you because you happen to be the one that broke the law. So here in Israel, Israel did not have prisons under the law. There were capital offenses. And if there was a capital crime that was established by a fair trial before the city elders and at the mouths of at least two or three witnesses, someone could be guilty of a capital crime, then they were stoned to death. That was Jewish capital punishment. In other lesser crimes, for example, what we're talking about here, if you cheated in business, if you deceived another in a business deal, or if you stole in business, you didn't go to jail, you paid it back to the victim plus a 20% penalty. After you'd made restitution, then you went to the temple to offer your trespass offering to God. There, this is, there's no application from this verse to us regarding slavery issues. Second verse that they use is this from Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. Now, listen closely because you need to dig a little deeper here. It says, Keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and fourth generation. Aha! You're guilty under the fourth generation. Reparations. No, that's not what that means at all. In every one of these cases... This particular issue, when you see it talking about the children's children under the third and fourth generation, in every case, the first being Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 34, verse 7, which is where we're at here, the second giving of the Ten Commandments, after Moses had broken the first set because he was angry at the sin of the people, Deuteronomy 5, 9, after the children of Israel had wandered for 40 years and they were on the east side of Jordan getting ready to cross over to the Promised Land, God again gave the Ten Commandments to the Hebrews. In every situation, that warning is talking about idolatry. And Numbers 14, 18 confirms that only the guilty were punished for their sins, not the following generations. Let's look. In Bible study, there's the law of first mention. As a matter of fact, there's one way you can study through the book of Revelation. If every reference there is actually listed elsewhere in the Old Testament. So it's like reading an old map. Those that re- remember paper maps. You know, the little triangle meant a gas station. You know, one inch meant 50 miles. You know, if you had the, if you had the uh, whatever that thing is down there, the, the scale... Legend, yeah, the legend. You know, you could, you could read the map. Same thing with reading the book of Revelation. Out of 404 verses, there's over 800 direct references or quotes or inferences from the Old Testament. So unless you know the Old Testament, you won't be able to understand the book of Revelation. Well, likewise here, you go to the law of first mention. So let's do that, Exodus chapter 20. Here is where it came from, the first giving of the law. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy... Speaking of idols. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Folks, these are Jewish tools of contrast. This is a rabbinic teaching tool. Just like contrasting blessings and cursings, obedience and disobedience, what we see here is the contrast of visiting or punishing iniquity and or showing mercy. Well, what determines the punishment or the mercy? Those who hate me or those that love and obey me. And the emphasis here at the end is how much greater is God's mercy than His anger. 
That's a very familiar Jewish phrase. If you had that background, you don't stumble over this at all. As a matter of fact, Alfred Edersham, great Jewish convert to Christianity, from whom we learn so much about the Jewish foundation of Christianity, said this, Revelation declares that this extends to the third generation. Here's the point. Thus seeming to limit the penal consequences, as one writer thinks, to those who are alive during the lifetime of the first offender or the offense in question. Thus far reaches God's justice. But as mercy is unlimited, it is to the thousandth generation. It is infinite. Do you see the contrast? So the phrase to the third and fourth generation shows that God's judgment has a limit. But His mercy is to the thousands and to the thousands, so it is unlimited. From a Jewish perspective, studying the Scripture, that kind of intellect, this is not an issue at all. Does the Bible teach that three or four generations after a trespass was specifically committed, that following generation was responsible to pay reparations plus 20%? So if you weren't the one that did it, are you responsible to pay the price plus 20%? No. Summary. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and children and children under the third and fourth generation is used only in Exodus 20, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 5. In every case, it deals with idolatry. And in every case, only the guilty are punished. Now, Numbers 14, it is used. Let's tell you the background of this. After the Jews had wandered, well, actually, this was before their wandering. They had crossed the Red Sea. They had spent about a year near here at Mount Sinai, or what we call Sinai. And after they had received the establishment, they'd received the law, they'd received the building plans for the tabernacle, they'd received uh, the priesthood of Aaron and all of that. Then they broke camp and they rolled up here to Kadesh Barnea. And God was preparing to let them into the promised land. Before they went, they sent in one spy for each of the twelve tribes. So twelve men went in and toured from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south to see if they could actually conquer the land and to see if it was everything God said it was. Well, if you remember, Scripture says that they brought back a bunch of grapes that was so big from Eshkel that it took two men to carry one bunch of grapes. And they came back and gave the report. They said, oh my goodness, it's, it's beyond everything, our expectations. This land is a land of milk and honey. It's amazing. However, there are giants in the land. And they weren't exaggerating. There were men like Goliath in the land. And there are great walled cities. We can't take it. Now, remember, this is the same people that walked through the midst of the Red Sea on dry land. This same people that was currently being fed with manna every morning. All they had to do was go out and pick it up. This same people had seen the Nile River turn to blood. They'd seen God smite the firstborn in all Egypt. And they get here and say, nope, they're too tough for us. Well, at that point in time, God said, okay, I've had enough with your lack of faith and disobedience. That being the big one, your disobedience. Said, you won't get to enjoy the promised land. But I'm going to keep my promises. Everything I said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your children will. And what was the judgment? Everybody from the age of 20 and above died over the next 38 years wandering in the wilderness. Then everybody from age 20 and below went into the promised land. So what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying this confirms my thesis that I just presented to you. Those that were actually guilty of the crime 
were the ones that did the time. As a matter of fact, their grandchildren did inherit the promised land. Now, one more verse just that should, if you want to honestly study the Scripture and see what the Scripture says. By the way, I warned you ahead of time, this is not preaching this morning. This is Bible teaching. You basically had two Sunday school classes today, but some lessons are just designed to fall this way. If you want to close the door on this debate, we look at Ezekiel chapter 18. The Jews were whining, saying, oh, we're, we're suffering. Here we are in captivity in Babylon. It's not our fault. It's our grandfather's fault. It's our great-grandfather's fault. Their fault, not our fault. Uh-uh. God put a stop to that. He said this, and I'll just read. By the way, you ought to read this entire chapter because it deals with this topic particularly. But let me just reference these two verses. For as for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, he spoiled his brother by uh, deceit and, un- and deceitful business practices and did that which is not good among his people. Lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. He's responsible for what he's done. Yet say ye, why doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? Well, when the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, well, he shall surely live. The soul that sins, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him." There is no such thing, ladies and gentlemen, as group guilt or group innocence. I am not a Christian because my father was one. My father's influence greatly affected my becoming a Christian, but that decision and the consequence of that decision was solely mine. Likewise, if my great-great-grandfather was a cattle rustler, I am not guilty of his crimes. The soul that sins, it shall die. The one who does the crime is the one that does the time. Now, if I've wronged someone, then I am the one responsible, not my kids. If I have been wronged by someone, then my damages are recoverable. However... I am not responsible, and neither are you, for any actions done by members of those with my melanin level 150 years ago. And you who have not been wronged personally cannot claim damages. Like I said last week, you should go back and look at this when they try to make this kind of division. You think about it. The psalmist said that God knew us when he put us together in our mother's womb. More so than that, Jeremiah said that before, God told Jeremiah, before I even began making you in your mother's womb, I had a job for you to do. So ladies and gentlemen, I had no control over being born in Edmond, Oklahoma in 1963. Why I was born in America and not in Asia, I have no idea. Why I was six foot five and not five foot six, I have no idea. Why was I born white and not black or Hispanic or Asian, I have no idea. Boy, I wonder who's responsible for making me. Oh, that would be God. I wonder who is responsible for planting me in Edmond, Oklahoma as a baby boy in 1963. Well, that too would be God. My responsibility is solely what shall I do with what God has entrusted me to do. 
What is my response to Jesus as Lord and Savior? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's individual responsibility, personal accountability. By the way, none of us can say it's not my fault. None of us can say I'm a victim. Two examples as we move on. Consider Daniel. 606 B.C., Jerusalem had been conquered by Babylon and subjugated. Daniel was a young man, probably around 13 or 14 years of age. Daniel had no political influence. It was not his actions that, that directed Judah. It wasn't his fault that Judah was being judged. Nevertheless, Daniel found himself taken captive some 900 miles away from his home and would never see his home again. Now, he was under Nebuchadnezzar's charge. He was trained in a different culture. He was vanquished by a superior military might. Daniel could have said, God, you are not fair. You don't know what you're doing. I don't deserve this. If this is how you're going to treat me, then I want nothing more to do with you. But he didn't. What did Daniel say? Daniel 1.8 says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not sin against God. Ladies and gentlemen, in spite of the circumstances he found himself, Daniel chose not to be a victim. And God used him mightily, even rising to the number one counselor and or advisor of, of the emperor Nebuchadnezzar. Let me give you another example. Joseph. Joseph was the 11th of what would eventually be 12 brothers of Jacob. He was hated by his brothers because he was dad's favorite. And dad did a poor job of hiding it. The other brothers knew it. They were jealous of him. They hated him. They beat him up. They sold him into slavery. They lied to his dad. While enslaved, Joseph was doing the right thing and was falsely accused of a crime that he did not commit. He went to jail, spent some two years in a pit of a prison, all of this beyond his control when he had done nothing wrong. Joseph could have said, God, you're not fair. I'm a victim. It's not my fault. But instead, Joseph said, how can I sin against God? None of us are victims, ladies and gentlemen. I got to tell you, there are certain things, if I was rewriting my life, that I would like to have differently. I got to tell you, I was within an eyelash of a national championship and an eyelash of a world championship. Got neither. If I was rewriting things, I would have liked to have done that a little differently. If I was in control, I would have liked to have avoided those nasty knee surgeries early on in my career. I would have liked to have played about 15 years of pro football and made a gazillion dollars and bought an island and moved away from all of you forever. <laughs> but you know who's in control? God is. And it's up to each and every one of us as how we are going to respond to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. We can either play the victim and say, woe is me, I've got cancer. Or say, woe is me, the debts are piling up. 
And quite frankly, that could be a reality. It was a reality with me with cancer two years ago. It was a reality with many of our folks with cancer. It's a reality that many of our church family probably has some bills piling up. We had a government shutdown for the first time in, in the United States history. And all of our businesses were closed. Well, folks, we can't change the circumstances we're in. However, we don't have to play the victim in the midst of those circumstances. Wherever we find ourselves, we can choose to glorify God in the midst of them. K. Carl Smith was one of our speakers in Grapevine, Texas. He wrote a book, and the title of it is Frederick Douglass Republican. Frederick Douglass was actually born, as K. Carl says, he wasn't in poverty. He wasn't even below the poverty level. He was a slave for the first 20 years of his life. He taught himself how to read and refused to be a victim. He escaped from slavery, refusing to be a victim. He became a preacher and a successful, respected businessman. He was so respected that as a black man in America in the 1860s and 1870s, he wound up becoming a counselor to five different Republican presidents And when he died, his estate had a current approximate net value of $11 million. Frederick Douglass didn't believe in victimization. He believed in opportunity. You know what his motto was? It was this. It says, get a job and do that job until you can get a better job. And do that job until you can start your own business. Pretty good, pretty good thought, isn't it? I'll tell you what, if there's one thing I hope that happens from all of this nonsense that we find ourselves in the middle of, I hope that we see a rebirth of small private business again. And let me tell you, folks, it's not by accident that you're seeing everything that's done from the top down, all the global leaders that are trying to take care of all of us through global government, that the Walmarts of the world and the Amazons of the world are flourishing And all the mom and pop shops are dying. When you understand Marxist strategy, you'll understand that that is all happening by design. But we're not talking about that today. Let me share this with you. You know why people are successful? According to the Brookings Institute in 2013, they did this study. They said, here is how you can guarantee that you'll be successful. Number one, at least finish high school. Number two, get a full-time job. Number three, get married before having children. And they suggested getting married after the age of 21. When you follow those three steps, 98% escape poverty. And 75% wind up working to where they are considered in the middle class. But sadly, in this same survey seven years ago, more than 40% of American children, including more than 70% of black children and 50% of Hispanic children, are born outside of marriage. You know, I said a while ago that Christianity is very practical. It is. You know, the Bible has instruction for every area of our life. And as followers of Christ, we should be looking for God's instruction in every area of our life. But before I do a wedding, I have several weeks of counseling, and I give a lot of homework, and I work with the young couple. 
The first thing I do with a couple as I visit with them is I have them read the book Total Money Makeover and bring me a budget. Because you cannot live on love. Try going down to the city of Edmond to pay your electric bill. Just take your wife with you, stand in front of them, say, I love my wife here. Let me give her a big old kiss. And they're going to look at you and say, we're still shutting off your electricity. And you're going to find that love doesn't flourish in a dark, unair-conditioned, unheated house nearly as well as it did beforehand. Second thing I do is I require them. Now, I can't make them because I can't watch them. But obviously, God desired sexuality. He made us as sexual beings. It's supposed to be a gift held sacred within the boundaries of marriage. So I tell a couple, listen, I don't know anything about what you've been doing. But if you have been misbehaving, stop it. Rededicate yourselves to purity. And then when you get married, you will be able to give yourself to your spouse in holiness as God intended. By the way, the two major causes of divorce are either infidelity or economic issues. There's a reason we start there. But understand, this is very practical. If you do things the right way, you will get the right outcome. I'm going to share, I'm going to close with one story. And I'm dealing with this topic of, of, uh, of white privilege. See those two lovely ladies? That is, this is about a year ago at, uh, what was the little restaurant? Up, uh, Cracker Barrel, Cracker Barrel. This is my mother, whose mom will turn 97 next month. Now, we can't see her since the shutdown. She's over here at Teal Creek. This is my aunt. My aunt is 29. But I want to tell you, brief, just real briefly as we close, about my, 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 my parents' story, our family's story. Uh, but to set the stage, I, I put a few slides in here, just a montage. If you've ever heard the term Great Depression, these are pictures from the Great Depression. Dust Bowl. Okay? You talk about Poverty. You'll not see poverty anywhere in America today that rivals what that generation lived through for over 10 years. This picture here is actually my mom's family. This is probably 1933, I'd guess, 1932. This is my mother. This is my aunt, Lucy, who's now sitting on the back row back there. This is my Uncle Elba. Now in heaven. And this is my Uncle Edwin, who was hit by a car when he was about the age of seven and killed. Mom and dad, uh, my mom's family made a living as itinerant farmers. They would drive to Texas to work the fields. They would drive to New Mexico to work the fields. They'd drive to California. They were literally, they would just be nomads driving looking for some place to work. And there would be, as I was looking at these slides of the Great Depression, there would literally be billboards by the Chamber of Commerce outside of a town saying, if you're looking for work, move on. You know, we don't have any jobs to offer here. You know, everything we've got here is just for our own hometown. Literally, it's that tough. They would drive from state to state. My mom actually picked cotton. So when that sports broadcaster for, for uh, uh, the, the Thunder a couple of years ago said, cotton picking, it's not a racist term. 
In fact, my dad said that all the time. It's just an expression. My mom actually picked cotton to help support her family as a four, five, six-year-old. She would start school late, but was so driven she would excel and actually skip some grades. 1941, December, America was attacked without a declaration of war by the Imperial Japanese Navy. We had over 3,000 soldiers, Americans, airmen, sailors, like killed that morning within just about two, three hours. Immediately following, my father, Bill Blair, enlisted in the Navy at 16. He lied to get in, but he was so passionate about defending America, he left his little bitty hometown, dirt roads in Cherry Valley, Arkansas, and enlisted in the United States Navy. He was actually serving in the South Pacific when the Navy discovered it, went and got him, brought him back home. Then as soon as he turned 17, he went back in the Navy, went back into service in the South Pacific. This was Pop, a little bit older here. You see a difference between 16 and maybe 20. Look at that mustache. See, you guys remember when I had a mustache? Big old six-foot-five Bill Blair. After World War II, my parents met at a church social in Fayetteville, Arkansas, little Baptist church, 1946. They got married. In fact, Dad escaped from the hospital to get married. He was on crutches, injured in the war, and uh, they got married. They had so much money that they had a White Castle hamburger that night, home of the Nickel Burgers, for their wedding dinner. Moved to Okmulgee, Oklahoma, to go to OSU Okmulgee, which was an extension of Oklahoma State University. Didn't have two nickels to rub together. Lived in what was called Veterans Village, where a lot of veterans coming back from the war went to school on the GI Bill. Mom talked about one time, Dad had bought her a gift, a little pendant, and they had so little money that Mom took it back down and traded it in so that instead of her getting the pendant, Dad got a set of cufflinks because since he was starting to work, Bev, you know this, though, you lived it, starting to work, it was more important for him to have cufflinks because he was trying to get into the professional world, and she was home caring for the child. Dave, little baby Dave, so she didn't need to have jewelry. By the way, come to find out, when you heard the old term Sunday dress, that was literal. They used to have a Sunday dress. They were so poor, they didn't have a right. I can go to my closet. My wife has closets full of nothing to wear. <laughs> mom, mom literally had a Sunday dress. And that's the dress that she wore to church every Sunday. Went to the grocery store. She carried Dave or pushed a stroller because they didn't have a car. Dad walked to school at Oklahoma State University. Then after he graduated, worked for the university in their engineering department for a while, walking to the university in a suit because they could not afford a car. Dad started to work. They budgeted. 
Let me tell you, my mom could strangle George Washington on a dollar until he begged for mercy. She was the best at coupon clipping and S&H green stamp savings. They lived within a budget. By the way, there's an old Dave Ramsey quote says, If you budget, you tell your money where it's going. If you don't budget, you wonder where it went. Everybody and every business should operate on a budget. But they worked hard. They had nothing. White privilege, my foot. They saved and they saved. Dad eventually got a job up here in Oklahoma City. They moved to Edmond. They rented a house until they could afford to build a house. And they saved and had more children. And they saved and paid their bills. We lived in a mo- I did not realize that we were poor. I thought we were rich. And we were very comfortable. We grew up. Steve and I shared a bedroom. It's a wonder I'm not insane. Dave had his own room. Steve and I had one room. Mom and Dad had the, guest, had the master bedroom with a tiny little master bath. We grew up in 1,400, was it 1,400? Rankin Street? About 1,400 square feet of, of space. Three bedroom, two bath, 1,400 square foot house on Rankin Street. You know what? All my friends lived on the street. It was literally like the, the days in which we see these movies. It was just that we'd get on our bikes and go outside and play until dark. And, and it was, it was, that was just life that we knew. And mom is still alive, I'll have you know. No estate has been passed on. I went to college on a football scholarship. When I got out, I, I got a job. I happened to work for three years for the Chicago Bears Football Club, Inc., then I went to work briefly for the Denver Cowboys football club, or the Denver Broncos, then for the Minnesota Vikings football club. Hey, it's a bear. You know what? You want to talk about hard job or job security, you try having a job where there's only, let's see, there's, there was less than 30 teams, and there's seven offensive linemen on a team. There's 210 jobs for offensive linemen in a country that has 280 million people. You want to talk about fighting for a job, fighting for survival. By the way, when I played, it wasn't making the millions of dollars. I think I got about eight bucks an hour back then. But I do have some metal knees to show for it. When they told me that I couldn't play football anymore, I came back and started a business with my brother with nothing. Which is what we had our savings. We started building our business. We had a business that we ran together for 29 years. Unexpectedly, at some point in the midway through that, God opened the door to ministry. You all know I never wanted to be a pastor. But God called me into this particular job and equipped me with a particular skill set that's needed for this job. And I've now worked here for 20 years. Not inherited an estate. All we've done is worked and saved and worked and saved and paid our bills and tried to do things the right way. Let me tell you, the best thing that mom and dad gave to us were these two things. They gave us their faith. That's more important than anything. I saw the reality of mom and dad's Christianity. It wasn't something they just did on Sunday morning. It was real. And because of that, it caused me to investigate it deeply. And eventually, it became real to me. Next best thing they gave me was a good name. Now, that was helpful. 
when we, Dave and I were starting our business, having the name Blair in Edmond was a good thing. Because people knew Bill Blair, that he was a man of honor, a man of character. And if we were his sons, they anticipated that we would be the same. But we're going to close with this as we've gone through this whole thing. Ladies and gentlemen, we understand life is hard. Who said it wasn't supposed to be? There are no guarantees in life other than our eternal destiny with Jesus as Lord. Matter of fact, the Bible says that as Christians in this era, we may face persecution. We may face tougher times because we're Christians. Scripture talks about that. Life is not easy. Working is not easy. Budging is not easy. Tithing is not easy. Paying bills are not easy. But we have choices. We can either do things God's way, which always work, or we can choose to do it some other way, which always leads to disaster. As we close, compare everything in light of the Bible. Compare everything to the light of Scripture. It's important that you understand what is being taught. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If you poison a person's mind, you can poison the person. What's Philippians tell us? Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are good report, these are the things we need to be putting into our mind.